News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is the day that we are going to be getting some information on what Canada's fiscal picture looks like. We know it's not going to be good, as we were just talking about with Gordon MacDonald. It can't possibly be, given everything that has happened in the last, you know, four months, not just here in Canada, but all over the world. Everybody is feeling this pain. But how kind of big is that pain going to be in Canada? That is the question. So Finance Minister Bill Morneau is about to release uh, what they've called a fiscal and economic snapshot. So just an update to where they see things at. Remember, it's not just about the money that they have spent, which we know is in the tens and tens of billions of dollars for things like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and more. But it's also about the revenue that they are no longer collecting or the way revenue is growing greatly and drastically been reduced in the last four months. The Parliamentary Budget Office has suggested that the deficit could be uh, as deep as $250 billion. Let's get a bit of a preview on what we might hear today. Joining us now is Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. Okay, none of this sounds like it's going to be good news. Uh, it's, it's uh, I'd say, brace yourself for a substantial um, hit. And we've heard from the parliamentary budget officer somewhere in the high 200 billions. What we're hearing from private sector economists is that they've been briefed by the government uh, to basically expect something in the ballpark of $300 billion in, in deficit. Um, and we'll also get a sense of where they think the economy is in terms of coming back uh, and potentially some of where that government spending could be going in the future. Of course, all of this is contingent on what actually happens with the pandemic and whether things go back to normal or there's a second wave. Uh, but this is the first time we'll get a snapshot of the government's finances since December 2019, because remember, we've had no fiscal updates. We've not had a budget either. Uh, this is you know, highly unusual. We usually get those fiscal updates regularly and that budget. So it's the first time we're really going to see the finances of the government. But keep in mind, this is going to be a very limited smaller version of that because of the ongoing events. Okay, so that is coming up later today. We'll have more on that. But Mercedes, I also wanted to ask you about the story, the exclusive that you had yesterday in regards to the update with the Rideau Hall uh, arrest that they had made last week. We're learning more about the person arrested. We are. Corey Huron, who scrawled a letter that uh, was handwritten listing a number of personal and anti-government grievances as well as financial concerns uh, before he carried out uh, this attack on Rideau Hall and ran through the gates with four loaded guns. Um, It's not a clear-cut example where you look and say, oh, this was his reason. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a number of reasons that he lists, and those reasons, by the way, we don't mean justifications, but what he's articulating. He's very clear in saying he, he is feels he can't continue living the way he has, that he's in pain, but also that um, he's angry with the government and that he wants this to be a wake-up call or a turning point. He never identifies a target or says exactly what he's going to do in the letter, but he apologizes to his friends and family for whatever it is that he is about to undertake. So that's sort of the first chance we've had to kind of see inside his mind what he actually wrote. Um, And and it does come across at points as being very confused, um, but there are some interesting threads there for sure that investigators are pulling on. Right. So was he upset about the pandemic, upset about jobs? Like, was he angry at the government? 
all of the above. Ah. Uh, he's upset about the pandemic. He says that he has lost his business. He says he's been under house arrest uh, because of the pandemic. What we think he means by that is that because he was a part of Operation Laser, the military's response, they have to completely self-quarantine at home, even less contact than everybody else. Uh, He says he doesn't think he can rebuild his business. He can't pay for his truck and it's going to be repossessed. Uh, He then goes on to blame the government for many things, saying, you know, he's angry about gun control. He's angry that Parliament is sitting. Uh, He's angry with government spending. He calls Canada a communist dictatorship, uh, says it's time for a wake-up call. Um, And then there's a sort of personal element where he says he doesn't want to end up like his father. And we're not really sure what that means. And he talks about being in pain and seeing, essentially, this is the best and only way out. Um, So it's really a combination of factors, and it'll be interesting to see um, if there's more charges that come out based on what's in that letter. All right, Mercedes, thank you for the update. Thank you. Well, there are a few areas of concern, even here in BC, when it comes to COVID-19. We keep getting those updates as well from health officials. For more on that, we're joined now by our very own Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, remember back, what was it, sort of late June, we heard about a COVID-19 outbreak at Brandy's Strip Club. I mean, I don't know if they call it a strip, dance lounge, whatever they call it. Brandy's in Vancouver had an outbreak of COVID-19. Looks like one of the staff members might have been exposed. And as a result, uh, they ended up putting out a warning saying, okay, customers might have been exposed and they shut down for a short period of time before being able to kick off their operations once again. Right. I was a little concerned about that at the time, though, because I thought they wanted people to know who might have been there that you'd probably need to get tested just to make sure and self-isolate. But I thought, is everybody going to admit that they were there? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the other side of it, too, is uh, you can imagine coming home to your wife and saying, yeah, honey, I uh, I might have been exposed to COVID-19. I, I, I was at Brandy's. I just went in to use the phone. I swear to goodness. I mean, come on, right? So, yeah, yeah. you might have some people denying that they were there, perhaps. And we're seeing the same thing happen now again, just a couple of weeks later at yet another Vancouver strip club. This time, the iconic number five orange, a staff member tested positive for COVID-19. So that staff member is now isolating along with another staff member. Uh, However, they're saying again, if you were here on Canada Day, specifically, that was the last time the staff member worked, then you might want to go get yourself tested or, or, you know, at least quarantine yourself until you're able to monitor your own symptoms. So here we have in a matter of weeks, yet another strip club with cases linked to COVID-19. Right. So what's being done about this one is this was an employee too, right? This was not necessarily a customer. Yeah, this was an employee as well. And the manager there said that Coastal Health Services contacted them. They recommended that they make some changes, especially to their contact tracing. They said that was one of the biggest issues that they had was the contact tracing. Yes. Which is, of course, a major concern because if you did come in contact with the staff member, then the the business should be able to call you and say, hey, you were here on this date and we think it's important that you thus go get tested. But if you have faulty contact tracing, then you can't contact all of those people who may have been in your business that day. So certainly a concern. They were able to get out a a few things sorted out and they were able to reopen with the approval of Vancouver Coastal Health. So Uh, you can go down there today and get a lap dance if you want to. (laughs) I'm I'm guessing for companies like that, right, for businesses like that, it's a 
you, they kind of have to weigh the differences here about the their right to privacy, whereas a lot of customers there might not want to know, right? People to know that they're there versus do you want your name splashed all over the news as having people who have COVID-19 there? And so yeah. perhaps in the beginning, they didn't take the contact tracing part of it as seriously. I'm guessing that now with these, you know, their name constantly coming up in the news, they might think differently about that. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, you might want to be on the one hand protecting your customers' privacy, but on the other hand, we're dealing with the global pandemic here. And look, yeah. if you want to go to a strip club during this very short period of our lives, all things considered, then it's important that, you know, you are forthcoming with with your information Please. or at least be aware that that business is going to be asking for your information. Yeah. You know, come Come July of 2021, I'm sure that you'll be able to go to the strip club anonymously again. But until then, you know, there are going to have to be some changes in, in how we go about this. But it has a lot of people asking, you know, was this the right type of business to reopen? Listen, as I long mean, as they do it safely, right? It was, again, if they have those contact tracing, if they're if they're adamant about helping out, which I think most businesses are, then it should be fine. But clearly, that wasn't initially happening. Well, and what's happening in in this particular industry that now we have two stories about COVID-19 breaking out specifically at two strip clubs? Is this just a matter of it's such a, a unique and odd story that we're hearing more about it in the news, more so than, say, uh, restaurants or, or bars? Or is this actually a problem linked to the strip club business? Can you not physically distance from your customers appropriately enough? Is this an issue specifically with strip clubs where they're just not able to function safely in this day and age of COVID-19? Right. All good questions. So, um, yeah, I wonder what the mask situation is there, too. But uh, we'll have to send you in there to go take a look at that, Nikki. <laughs> uh, but we'll talk about speaking of mask situation. There's another kind of thing that's cropped up here with this yoga studio. Yeah, this story, it's absolutely nuts. You often hear about people being told, you know, they aren't allowed to come into this business unless they're wearing a mask. I mean, we hear those stories on the news all the time, especially in Eastern Canada, where masks are mandatory in some provinces. In this case, it was the exact opposite. So you have this woman named Allie, uh, Allie Cloth. She walks into Bikram Yoga Studio on Commercial Drive, and she is wearing a mask. She has some lung problems, and she's wearing a mask. She was turned away because she was wearing the mask. So hmm. imagine this. She walks into this yoga studio and she says that's when she saw the owner at the front desk. Really? Uh, you're wearing a mask? And I said, yep, you're going to start with me already about that? And we've never gotten along, to be honest. So that's why I'm... Uh, anyway, um, happy to not ever go back. So he proceeded to check me and my friend in about to put my mat down in the studio he came to the door of the the studio room um, and he said Allie can I just talk to you for a sec he brought me into another room where he basically said he and the other owner did not really want masks there he said fear breeds fear and I said I'm not really scared of anything but you he already knew I had lung issues. I had a pulmonary embolism and pneumonia previously. So I was just mindful of my lungs and not wanting to get sick. I don't understand, Nikki, the part about the story with we don't want the masks here because what's it to them if somebody wants to wear a mask? Well, this is what I don't get at all. I mean, who cares? If one of your customers comes in and they're wearing a mask, 
Great. What's it to you? Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It it literally detracts 0% from your business. However, this yoga studio, they insisted that she take off the mask or they said, look, we'll give you a refund. So she said, fine, I'll take the refund and I'm going to leave. But when Global News contacted the, the yoga studio, they said that masks may reduce the ability to breathe comfortably and are not permitted inside the yoga practice room. But what's it to them? A, yeah, again, <laughs> that sounds like it's up to the client, to be honest. Yeah. If you can't breathe comfortably while you're doing yoga, maybe you opt to leave or maybe you, you take off your mask or whatever. But again, if the business is okay with their clientele not wearing masks, then it seems like it should be up to the customer's discretion. Instead, this business said, no, get out. You're wearing a mask. Here's your refund. Hit the road. Okay, that really disturbs me because anybody who's been to Bikram Yoga One knows how hot it is in there, right? Everybody's super sweaty, lots of moisture around. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I wouldn't want to go without wearing a mask. Yeah, it's something Justin Trudeau might say. People doing yoga moistly. Oh, you had to go there. there. You had to go there, <laughs> didn't you? But Ugh. you know, as she said, Bikram can be a pretty uh, strict practice. Yes, it but is. she said in this case, the the rules and that sense of of being strict in this practice is totally misplaced and yeah. irresponsible as well. I would agree. If, I don't. I just don't understand. Again, I don't understand what it is to them if if one of their you know people want to do that, want to wear that mask. But anyway, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Now, we know that there have been a lot of countries, a lot of people who have singled out the World Health Organization during this COVID-19 pandemic as not doing the job that everyone had kind of hoped. They can't be all things to all people, but still, a lot of areas that could have been done better here. Well, all of that came to a head yesterday when the United States announced that they will officially leave the World Health Organization, and that is in spite of the fact they contribute almost a quarter of that organization's budget. Does that complicate things in the search for all this uh, a worldwide vaccine for COVID-19 and the international cooperation that is done under the WHO umbrella? Joining us now is Ophelia Michalides, a manager of the Centre for Global Health at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Ophelia, thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Is this a concern with the U.S. announcing that they want out? So, Simi... Um I really appreciate the time to talk to you and your listeners about this. Um, Global health issues are certainly very complex and complicated and infused with a lot of uncertainty. And um, if the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything so far, it is that it is very far-reaching and having an undeniable impact on people across Canada and the world. Um, and pandemics do have a funny way of teaching us about ourselves and our public institutions. Um, they uncover the cracks in our systems, whether it be our health systems, our, our public, our social uh, systems, our political systems. And um, the field of global health at its core is built around the idea of improving health um, and the well-being of people and the planet from a number of vantage points. Um, as a global health practitioner coming from a school of public health, um, I certainly embrace the mission of in- improving um, health for all um, and recognize that in order to create positive change in the world, we need to be equipped to do so. And this goes beyond just technical knowledge in public health, but rather an understanding of the range of factors that affect our health. Um, And we do have a particular tool in global health to deal with this complexity, um, and it is called global health diplomacy. And it is essentially um, where the art of diplomacy and the science of public health 
meet. Um, it's a process that involves many actors and shapes the way um, health plays out on a global scale. And the U- U.S.'s decision to retract from the World Health Organization is a real-life example of uh, global health diplomacy in action. Okay, so given how important, from what you just described there, how important the World Health Organization is, when you have so much kind of controversy surrounding it, does that impede worldwide efforts, do you think, to fight something like COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question, Samini, and certainly the question that is on everyone's mind. Um, there is a group of scholars and experts um, in global public health. Um, it's actually a group or a consortium of universities for global health to which the Dalai Lama School of Public Health belongs, um, who wrote a letter and released a letter to the U.S. Congress yesterday, actually, outlining the potentially devastating impacts of the U.S.'s withdrawal from the World Health Organization. Um, as uh, we've probably been hearing over the news these days, the U.S. has an annual contribution to the WHO and then about the $400 million mark, um, making it the largest funding source for the agency. It provides certainly uh, well over 10% of the agency's budget. And withdrawing the support will possibly cost lives um, with respect to COVID. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, for the U.S., uh, the U.S. will lose access to the WHO's global systems for sharing critical outbreak data and vaccine information. Right. Um, and certainly outside of the U.S., again, the U.S. Um, funds the largest portion of the WHO's health emergency program, which means funding for testing, for contact tracing, for building our healthcare workforce, and including vaccine development um, could be lost. And it is important to note that um, it will possibly cost lives in all countries, even outside of COVID. Again, U.S. funds have helped to fund initiatives beyond COVID, such as vaccines and HIV AIDS. Uh, So undoubtedly, the implications will be difficult. Uh, The health implications will be difficult for the U.S., uh, the WHO, and all countries. The world needs U.S. expertise in science and vice versa. So do people look at that and think only of the political argument when it comes to the World Health Organization, not understanding, as you were just explaining, all of the things that go on underneath it, that is the collecting of data, the statistics, all of that, which is so valuable? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that, I mean, COVID-19 doesn't have borders and it, it, to some degree, neither should some of our institutions. And so we, we certainly need global institutions that work across different countries' interests and negotiate um, what's best for all uh, people. I mean, I think it's also interesting and important to remember what the WHO represents. I mean, we create institutions and we give them power according to our values. And if COVID has taught us anything, um, and taught us that we value health and that the right to health needs to be protected. And uh, the WHO has historically been set up to do so. All right. So is this like for people who work in public health, as you do, are you concerned about now the lack of information that might come to public health organizations from a result of this? Mm-hmm. No, that's an excellent question. And I do know that, um, for instance, Canada and also institutions, academic institutions, um, will continue to uh, contribute to 
to research around global policy when it comes to global health challenges um, and to share this information. Um, And I I do believe that it's important to stay at the table so that, I mean, for instance, Canada, I, I certainly cannot speak on behalf of the government of Canada, but Canada is, we know, is a supporter and a significant funder of the WHO and continues to be part of this global response to tackle COVID-19, which includes information sharing. All right, Ophelia, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Simi. That is Ophelia Michaelides, who is the manager of the Centre for Global Health at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Now, for people who work in public health, what they heard yesterday is concerning from the President of the United States, saying that the United States was going to get out of the World Health Organization uh, because what about all that information? That's what epidemiology and public health and all that is based on, data, stats, knowing what is going on in other parts of the world. An outbreak like COVID-19, you can't get the heads up necessarily unless all these countries are reporting to the World Health Organization. So that is the concern there. What will this mean? That'll be a big missing piece. We've been talking this morning about the fact that later today we will be getting a fiscal update from the federal government. Global Mail newspaper is reporting that federal finance minister Bill Morneau could announce a federal deficit of $300 billion today. So we thought, let's put that number in perspective because it is huge, it is scary, but what does it mean? Joining us now is David McDonald, senior Ottawa economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that is certainly an unprecedented number. Should Canadians be concerned about that? It is unprecedented, the biggest we've certainly had in our history. Um, But I think one of the things to always remember with federal deficits is that the federal government doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists tightly connected to the rest of the economy. And the deficit's an accounting convention, uh, and it's one side of the ledger. And any deficit means a dollar-for-dollar benefit in some other part of the economy. And so this $300 billion deficit at the federal level means a $300 billion benefit or surplus in another area of the economy. And so looking at the programs that created this deficit, most of that uh, benefit is actually going to people who've lost their jobs or people who would have lost their jobs had there not been the wage subsidy program. And so this is exactly the type of thing the federal government should be doing, is supporting uh, the people that otherwise would have been hit very hard by this with, in the sense that they wouldn't have gotten income support, so they would have lost their jobs. Right. Okay. So I think people understand that, right? They know that the government did have to have this extraordinary amount of spending. I guess the question is, how do we dig ourselves out of this hole now? Well, I mean, what's interesting is that um, the federal government has actually never borrowed money this cheaply. The interest rate for the federal government, we have never seen an interest rate this low in our history. We can lock in an interest rate now where uh, people who lend us money uh, lose money over the course of the five or 10 year period that they've lent us this money because interest rates are so low, they're actually below the rate of inflation. And so in that sense, I mean, this is a, an ideal situation for us. We're not paying 9% interest, we're paying you know, under a percent interest um, on this type of debt. And so in that sense, uh, you know, the, the actual cost to carry this debt is extremely low. Um, and otherwise, I mean, the deficit, the deficit can be shifted. I mean, this is the other thing that, that can happen is that it didn't have to happen at the federal level. We could have just decided, the federal government could have decided not to have these types of programs. That would have shifted the deficit out of the federal books, but onto household books and onto provincial books as social assistance caseloads exploded, for instance, or people, you know, use their credit cards, lines of interest, and uh, drew down their bank accounts in order to cover for the fact they'd lost right. their jobs. So we can move deficits. Um, it happened that the federal government took on most of the deficit, but they're in a 
a good position to do that. Right. They still would have been in a deficit, though, because the amount of money that's not coming in, right, in terms of revenue would also be a huge impact. That's right. And so uh, this is the other piece of why the, the $300 billion number is going to come up is not only that there's these new programs like CERB and the wage subsidy, uh, but also what the amount they take in through corporate income taxes, personal income taxes, and the GST will also be down because people lost their jobs and therefore they're not paying taxes and so on. Um, and so that's a, that will have an impact. But in the grand scheme of things, the losses from uh, corporate and personal income taxes are going to be a fair amount lower than the cost of these new programs like the emergency benefit. Uh, we'll see the full details when, when everything's released at 1.40 this afternoon. Uh, but it looks like at this point from some preliminary estimates that that will be a, a smaller part of that overall deficit. Okay, so what, what are you looking for? Like, what do you want to hear from the finance minister today? Well, certainly it'll be interesting to see what the federal projections are of the total deficit and how it breaks down. Um, I think the next critical step for the federal government right now is what happens in August when the emergency benefit, uh, as is scheduled to, um, expires and we move back to the EI system. I think that there needs to be a better transition from the emergency benefit back onto EI and critical changes made to EI that make it much better and make it more similar, in fact, to the emergency benefit. Like you can pay benefits quickly, it covers gig workers like the mm -hmm. emergency benefit does and so on. Um, that, I think, is the next critical step for the federal government. And we'll see if we get more details in this update and then the next step going forward is how do we start to rebuild our economy, go outside of just cash transfers to rebuilding our economy. We've got big sectors of the economy, retail, food, hospitality, that are, that are just not going to come back uh, in the way that we have, you know, in the way that they were in February uh, for years, um, particularly if we don't have a vaccine. Uh, and so how do we get those workers into new jobs so that they're not on emergency benefits in EI? Uh, predominantly women staffing those sectors, low-wage women in particular, making under $16 an hour. Um, so how do we retrain those folks to get them into other sectors in the economy? Um, and also, how do we rebuild uh, childcare and schools such that they can mm -hmm. operate in a COVID-19 world and let their parents go back to work? I mean, this is another big piece of it, yeah. is that um, even, if, even as we do reopen childcare and schools, not the same capacity levels, uh, thinking of kids being home a couple days a week. Well, you, you can't work if your kids are at home two days a week, certainly not a full-time job. And these are, I think, the critical next questions after we get out of this emergency phase of trying to support people with income supports. All right, David, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's David McDonald, Senior Ottawa Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, talking about what we are likely to hear from the Finance Minister Bill Morneau later today. Federal deficit could be up to $300 billion, but that is for the emergency portion of the things that we had to do for the last you know, four months or so. So how do they intend to resolve that moving forward? Well, we've been hearing these stories anecdotally and talking to people about them for months, right? Frontline healthcare workers who haven't been able to see their parents, their partners, sometimes even their children. It's taking a huge toll. And health experts are sounding the alarm about this. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Fardis Husseini, who's the Vice President of Research and Policy at the Centre of Excellence on Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder at the Royal Ottawa Hospital. Fardis, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So are we concerned about kind of the long-term uh, mental health impact this is having on our frontline healthcare workers? 
Absolutely. Yeah. What we've seen since the COVID-19 outbreak, our frontline healthcare workers have been under considerable stress. And, you know, every day they're engaged in a balancing act, making critical decisions around which patients will receive life-saving care when resources are limited, having to discharge someone earlier than recommended to avoid the risk of infecting others, or having to eliminate, quote-unquote, non-essential care during the crisis. And we know being stretched physically and mentally and unable to provide optimum care to everyone may lead to moral injury. Uh, and the concept of moral injury is not a new construct. It started in the veteran military population where uh, veterans who have shown to have mental health problems emerge from decisions they made or witnessed that are in conflict with their deeply held values. And we're seeing that healthcare workers right now, you know, who might come into work with, you know, low PPE and have a sense of uh, guilt or anger mm-hmm. or betrayal at the system because they're like, why am I coming into work and putting myself at risk and why is the system putting me in a kind of situation? And that day in, day out, stress can actually lead to moral injury. Right. Now, I know you're one of the groups that has been involved in kind of putting together guidelines or creating some guidelines to help with this potential emotional trauma. What are those guidelines like? Yeah, we just recently, you know, yesterday released the guideline, uh, well, Moral uh, Stress Amongst Healthcare Workers During COVID-19, A Guide to Moral Injury, where we're talking about what can frontline workers do, what can administrators do, what can organizations do to ensure that they're putting the best systems in place to make sure that the well-being of their frontline healthcare workers are being taken care of. So everyone has a role to play here, you know. So this is a map uh, to essentially implement uh, preventative and early intervention structures to support healthcare workers. So at an organization level, you know, you want to make sure that you're promoting a supportive culture, you know, including support services for staff. You know, you want to be rotating staff between high and low stress roles, uh, establishing policies to guide staff through ethically difficult decisions. And then there's also steps you have to take at the team level. You know, you want to ensure that you're providing strong leadership and establish cohesive teams with high morale. Uh, you want to ensure you're being prepared to discuss moral and ethical challenges. So having a debrief, an opportunity to debrief after a difficult day or even a difficult moment. And then at the individual level, you know, also getting individuals to understand what these moral stressors might be, what moral injury is, and what they can do about it. You know, so getting the uh, eating well, regular exercise, maintaining social connections. So this is essentially a map that we've uh, developed that can help organizations, individuals, and teams to be well prepared to uh, address this. And you know, we want to become, we want to move upstream and get there before it becomes a significant crisis. Right, because we weren't prepared for this in, in terms of emotionally and those mental health issues that you're talking about. I think that's something that really caught everybody off guard. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of work in Canada, we've been extremely fortunate, you know, where our doctors and nurses are not having to decide who gets access to a limited number of ventilators. You know, we've seen in, in Italy and the U.S. where this has been quite a huge issue and putting that kind of burden on an individual who's Hippocratic all this to, you know, make sure that they're taking care of the well-being of everyone, you know, that kind of increased job demand in this risky circumstance is something that we weren't prepared for, you know, but it's important that now that we've named it and we're building awareness toward it, is to ensure that those supports are in place to help uh, everyone so they don't feel like they're being overburdened, overwhelmed. Are there signs for Deuce as well that we should be looking for if we know somebody who is a frontline healthcare worker? Yeah, so in the, in the veteran military population, a moral injury is defined as, you know, the psychological, social, and spiritual impacts of events involving betrayal or transgression of one's own deeply held moral beliefs and values. So, you know, sometimes people might feel guilt or shame. You know, we've heard from doctors that have, you know, at uh, because of the 
evolving nature of COVID-19 and even the treatment options. Uh, some doctors, you know, they've told us they at one point put a patient on his back and who quickly then started breathing. But when they tried the same technique, the next day another patient, that person flatlined. So, you know, they're really worried about the different outcomes, you know, so making sure that you have an opportunity to debrief because when you see that guilt, shame, anger, betrayal, those are the early signs of potential more injury. And if you're feeling that day in, day out, that's what can lead to, you know, right. the potential issues. Do you get the sense that we're going to be dealing with this, some of the, the fallout from this for years to come? Yeah, everything is pointing to a pretty significant psychological consequence of all this, you know, but that's why we're hoping uh, with the help of many partners in the space and, you know, and to make sure that we're building that awareness so everyone uh, knows about this and, you know, and then we can make sure that the organizations have put everything in place to minimize this as much as we can, you know, because we know it's occurring, we're hearing it anecdotally and we're slowly starting to study it because it's a fairly newer construct in the healthcare workers. But absolutely, um, you know, if there's a second wave, potential for a second wave, we want to make sure that we're getting ahead of it because uh, if we don't, this will be another crisis on top of a crisis. All right, Vardu, thank you very much for your time and telling us all about it. Of course, thank you for having me on, Sami. That care. is Vardu Husseini, who's the Vice President of Research and Policy at the Centre of Excellence on Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder at the Royal Ottawa Hospital. So they have developed some criteria, some guidelines, really, to help prevent and also help kind of recognize the emotional trauma that some frontline healthcare workers are going through on top of everything that they're seeing at work, right? And look at what's happening down in the United States. Like, we were kind of protected from it here in BC, but still, it has been an incredibly stressful time. And then they can't see their parents. They can't see their partners, sometimes even their children. So yeah, that is taking a huge toll out there. If you'd like to comment, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. You know, there are thousands and thousands of businesses here in BC, and it has been a huge challenge to make sure those of them that interact with the public have safety rules in place so that they are complying with COVID-19 regulations. Making sure that happens is the job of WorkSafe BC. But not everybody is going along with the rules, so we thought we would check in on how that's going. Al Johnson joins us now, the Head of Prevention Services at WorkSafe BC. Al, thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Good morning, Simi. How many inspections are you guys doing? We have done a number of inspections and consultations. Uh, Our staff have been working very hard uh, across the province to engage with workers and employers uh, to help them really develop and implement their COVID safety plans for their specific workplaces. We've done approximately 12,000 inspections uh, up until approximately the end of June uh, across a wide variety of industry sectors. We've reached out and done uh, 2,000 plus consultations in addition to that. So we're getting out there and I'm pleased to say that generally speaking, the vast majority of employers are meeting their responsibilities, their responsibilities to assess the risk risk and manage the potential COVID exposures for their workers or to their workers by following their COVID safety plans that they're putting in place. As you mentioned in the intro, there are a few hiccups here and there. We're dealing with those and working with those employers. Um, But generally speaking, out of 12,000 inspections, um, we've written about 330 orders. Okay, so that's not bad, 330 out of the, you know, 12,000 there. What happens in those cases where they just didn't understand the rules? Are they kind of willfully disobeying the rules? 
it's a little bit um, uh, all of that, for sure, and a little bit more. Uh, prevention officers write orders when they feel that certainly there's a violation mm-hmm. uh, to the regulation and the employer needs some further direction or motivation to change something. Uh, in, in, a, in, in essence, the employer might not do it voluntarily when it comes to COVID issues. And so we see when we look at the orders that have been written, um, there's really two sectors that sort of stand out, and that's the service sector that uh, addresses hotels or includes hotels, restaurants, hair salons, that type of service, and then the trade sector, which is really the retail operations that operate in the province. And uh, for, for the most part, those orders that have been written have fallen into those, those two sectors. And they deal with a couple of things. Um, we, have a, we, we really write orders around COVID for the general requirement for employers to establish and maintain a healthy and safe workplace. So it's a general duty. And we see that there's a couple of uh, uh, COVID issues that really tease out. The COVID plan uh, may not be communicated or understood by the workers themselves. So there's a greater need for orientation and training in some cases. Also for new workers, they need to make sure they understand what is expected of them when it comes to COVID. Um, We've also had orders written around the participation of safety representatives or, or worker representatives and joint health and safety committee persons participating in the COVID safety plan development. Mm-hmm. We want employers to work with their works, their workers, work with their staff to develop the plan so that both parties know what's expected and what's going on. And then the, the other area where we see orders being written are really where the plans are missing something. Um, it might be around physical distancing. It might be around hygiene practices or, or what the, whatever the case may be or the written plan is not being followed or practiced, uh, the practice is different to the plan. Right. So that uh, the employer writes a really good plan, but then over time uh, they, they see there's a different way of doing things, but they don't update their plan. So these plans are intended to be fluid, dynamic, to mm-hmm. be reviewed, and we really want the plan that's written to be what's being practiced on the shop floor, so to speak. Oh. So that's really the area. Nothing... Overly significant, uh, nothing that's, uh, that's life and death when it comes to these issues, but it's really about tweaking, improving, uh, picking up on, on strengthening the plans that uh, mm-hmm. uh, are in those particular sectors. Well, you got a lot of work to do. Al, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So in the news, you've been hearing about something called the BC Virtual Services Card. It's a new way for residents to access government services electronically. And this could mean all sorts of things. And you're wondering right now, wait, do I need one of these? Like, should I be getting one of these? Let's find out. Joining us is the Minister of Citizen Services, Anne Kang. Thank you very much for being here. Morning, Sydney. It's good to be here. So who should be getting one of these cards? So um, I'd like to start by saying that most people in British Columbia who are citizens, um, we do, everyone does already have a BC services card. Um, Many people may recognize this as um, the amalgamation of their previous care card, which became, um, when we put more services into the care card, uh, it became the BC services card. And uh, most recently in the past few years, ICBC and BC services card has been working together to produce one card. So many people have this one card, which they, they really identify as uh, the BC service, uh, sorry, their, their driver's license, but it is their BC services card. Ah, okay. So is this for yes. people then who don't have a driver's license? 
No, actually, um, most people in BC have a BC services card, and um, it is not something new. In the past, uh, we have people going into BC, uh, service BC centers or activating um, other sorts of government services using their BC service card. It's just that people aren't used to using the name BC service card. So if you take a look at your driver's license, um, it does say BC uh, driver's license and services card. Right. Okay. So then how is that different from the virtual services card? Um, yeah. So during the uh, p- pandemic, more and more people are using their mobile uh, BC service card to access online government services. And so this program was actually um, launched. It was called Verify by Video Service. And um, so to keep up with uh, the, the time to be innovative, um, to, to meet citizen demands, we are moving a lot of our government services online so people could do the work online. Um, and so we, we have found that there are more people who want to activate their BC service card online. And during the pandemic, we are seeing more and more um, uh, people doing that. So to, to help with the bottleneck and uh, the, the, the growth of the volume, we now have uh, a new send video option so that uh, people could use this anytime, anywhere, and how they want it to. So they don't have to wait in queue to have their identification verified by a BC service uh, customer representative. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it kind of avoids mm-hmm. the lineup. Yes, yeah. yeah. So okay. quickly and conveniently. Right. So then what would we use this for? What is, is everything we could instead of our instead of having to go wait in a lineup at a BC services center? Yes. Yeah. So um, we have quite a few services that are available. Um, so once the car is activated, people can uh, pay their bills or access their health information. Um, for example, uh, we so we launched this program last year uh, in June with the post-secondary students, and they're able to apply for student loans with a student aid BC. Other online services that we can find are um, people can use this to access BC corporate registry online tool to manage uh, cooperatively, uh, sorry, cooperative associations with the cooperative online. We can also pay health-related bills and student loans, um, uh, access health information using the health gateway, Mm -hmm. and view and manage your personal income tax and benefit information with my account from uh, the Canadian Revenue Agency. So it's very convenient. Um, you may choose. We're not taking away any existing program. Uh, you, people can still access uh, services through our Service BC or other federal partners. Or you could choose to access government service online, anytime, anywhere you want. Okay. So then for more, mm-hmm. for more information, is there like a website people can go to to learn more about this? Definitely. You could go to Service BC. Um, at gov.bc.ca. All right, we will do that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sarah. That is Anne Kang, Minister of Citizen Services, talking about the new BC Virtual Services card. So anything that you would go and get in a line for for the BC government, for a BC government service, is now something that you can do online instead. There, Of course, this all has to do with COVID-19, right? Too many people in the lineups, too much stuff going on. This is an easier way for them to keep track of all of that. So this avoids that. For more information, just go online and check it out for yourself. Well, today is the day that we are going to be getting some information on what Canada's fiscal picture looks like. 
We know it's not going to be good, as we were just talking about with Gordon McDonald. It can't possibly be, given everything that has happened in the last, you know, four months, not just here in Canada, but all over the world. Everybody is feeling this pain, but how kind of big is that pain going to be in Canada? That is the question. So Finance Minister Bill Morneau is about to release uh, what they've called a fiscal and economic snapshot. So just an update to where they see things at. Remember, it's not just about the money that they have spent, which we know is in the tens and tens of billions of dollars for things like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and more. But it's also about the revenue that they are no longer collecting or the way revenue is growing greatly and drastically been reduced in the last four months. The Parliamentary Budget Office has suggested that the deficit could be uh, as deep as $250 billion. Let's get a bit of a preview on what we might hear today. Joining us now is Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. Okay, none of this sounds like it's going to be good news. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'd say brace yourself for a substantial, um, hit. And we've heard from the parliamentary budget officer somewhere in the high 200 billions. What we're hearing from private sector economists is that they've been briefed by the government uh, to basically expect something in the ballpark of $300 billion in, in, deficit. Um, and we'll also get a sense of where they think the economy is in terms of coming back uh, and potentially some of where that government spending could be going in the future. Of course, all of this is contingent on what actually happens with the pandemic and whether things go back to normal or there's a second wave. Uh, but this is the first time we'll get a snapshot of the government's finances since December 2019, because remember, we've had no fiscal updates. We've not had a budget either. Uh, this is you know, highly unusual. We usually get those fiscal updates regularly and that budget. So it's the first time we're really going to see the finances of the government. But keep in mind, this is going to be a very limited smaller version of that because of the ongoing events. Okay, so that is coming up later today. We'll have more on that. But Mercedes, I also wanted to ask you about the story, the exclusive that you had yesterday in regards to the update with the Rideau Hall uh, arrest that they had made last week. We're learning more about the person arrested. We are. Corey Huron, who scrawled a letter that uh, was handwritten listing a number of personal and anti-government grievances as well as financial concerns uh, before he carried out uh, this attack on Rideau Hall and ran through the gates with four loaded guns. Um, It's not a clear-cut example where you look and say, oh, this was his reason. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a number of reasons that he lists, and those reasons, by the way, we don't mean justifications, but what he's articulating. He's very clear in saying he, he is feels he can't continue living the way he has, that he's in pain, but also that um, he's angry with the government and that he wants this to be a wake-up call or a turning point. He never identifies a target or says exactly what he's going to do in the letter, but he apologizes to his friends and family for whatever it is that he is about to undertake. So that's sort of the first chance we've had to kind of see inside his mind what he actually wrote. Um, and, and it does come across at points as being very confused, um, but there are some interesting threads there for sure that investigators are pulling on. Right. So w- was he upset about the pandemic, upset about jobs? Like, was he angry at the government? All of the above. Ah. Uh, he's upset about the pandemic. He says that he has lost his business. He says he's been under house arrest uh, because of the pandemic. What we think he means by that is that because he was a part of Operation Laser, the military's response, 
they have to completely self-quarantine at home, even less contact than everybody else. Uh, He says he doesn't think he can rebuild his business. He can't pay for his truck and it's going to be repossessed. Uh, He then goes on to blame the government for many things, saying, you know, he's angry about gun control. He's angry that Parliament is sitting. Uh, He's angry with government spending. He calls Canada a communist dictatorship, uh, says it's time for a wake-up call. Um, And then there's a sort of personal element where he says he doesn't want to end up like his father. And we're not really sure what that means. And he talks about being in pain and seeing, essentially, this is the best and only way out. Um, So it's really a combination of factors, and it'll be interesting to see um, if there's more charges that come out based on what's in that letter. All right, Mercedes, thank you for the update. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there are a few areas of concern, even here in BC, when it comes to COVID-19. We keep getting those updates as well from health officials. For more on that, we're joined now by our very own Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, remember back, what was it, sort of late June, we heard about a COVID-19 outbreak at Brandy's Strip Club. I mean, I don't know if they call it a strip, dance lounge, whatever they call it. Brandy's in Vancouver had an outbreak of COVID-19. Looks like one of the staff members might have been exposed. And as a result, uh, they ended up putting out a warning saying, okay, customers might have been exposed and they shut down for a short period of time before being able to kick off their operations once again. Right. I was a little concerned about that at the time, though, because I thought they wanted people to know who might have been there, that you'd probably need to get tested just to make sure and self-isolate. But I thought, is everybody going to admit that they were there? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the other side of it, too, is uh, you can imagine coming home to your wife and saying, yeah, honey, I uh, I might have been exposed to COVID-19. I, I, I was at Brandy's. I just went in to use the phone. I swear to goodness. I mean, come on, right? So, yeah, yeah. you might have some people denying that they were there, perhaps. And we're seeing the same thing happen now again, just a couple of weeks later at yet another Vancouver strip club. This time, the iconic number five orange, a staff member tested positive for COVID-19. So that staff member is now isolating along with another staff member. Uh, However, they're saying again, if you were here on Canada Day, specifically, that was the last time the staff member worked, then you might want to go get yourself tested or, or, you know, at least quarantine yourself until you're able to monitor your own symptoms. So here we have in a matter of weeks, yet another strip club with cases linked to COVID-19. Right. So what's being done about this one is this was an employee too, right? This was not necessarily a customer. Yeah, this was an employee as well. And the manager there said that Coastal Health Services contacted them. They recommended that they make some changes, especially to their contact tracing. They said that was one of the biggest issues that they had was the contact tracing. Yes. Which is, of course, a major concern because if you did come in contact with the staff member, then the the business should be able to call you and say, hey, you were here on this date and we think it's important that you thus go get tested. But if you have faulty contact tracing, then you can't contact all of those people who may have been in your business that day. So certainly a concern. They were able to get out a a few things sorted out and they were able to reopen with the approval of Vancouver Coastal Health. So Uh, you can go down there today and get a lap dance if you want to. (laughs) I'm I'm guessing for companies like that, right, for businesses like that, it's a you, they kind of have to weigh the differences here about the their right to privacy, whereas a lot of customers there might not want to know, right? People to know that they're there versus do you want your name splashed all over the news as having people who have COVID-19 there? And so yeah. perhaps in the beginning, they didn't take the contact tracing part of it as seriously. 
I'm guessing that now with these, you know, their name constantly coming up in the news, they might think differently about that. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, you might want to be on the one hand protecting your customers' privacy, but on the other hand, we're dealing with the global pandemic here. And look, yeah. if you want to go to a strip club during this very short period of our lives, all things considered, then it's important that, you know, you are forthcoming with with your information Please. or at least be aware that that business is going to be asking for your information. Yeah. You know, come come July of 2021, I'm sure that you'll be able to go to the strip club anonymously again. But until then, you know, there are going to have to be some changes in, in how we go about this. But it has a lot of people asking, you know, was this the right type of business to reopen? Listen, as I long mean, as they do it safely, right? It was, again, if they have those contact tracing, if they're if they're adamant about helping out, which I think most businesses are, then it should be fine. But clearly, that wasn't initially happening. Well, and what's happening in, in this particular industry that now we have two stories about COVID-19 breaking out specifically at two strip clubs. Is this just a matter of it's such a, a unique and odd story that we're hearing more about it in the news, more so than, say, uh, restaurants or, or bars? Or is this actually a problem linked to the strip club business? Can you not physically distance from your customers appropriately enough? Is this an issue specifically with strip clubs where they're just not able to function safely in this day and age of COVID-19? Right. All good questions. So, um, yeah, I wonder what the mask situation is there, too. But uh, we'll have to send you in there to go take a look at that, Nikki. <laughs> uh, but we'll talk about speaking of mask situation. There's another kind of thing that's cropped up here with this yoga studio. Yeah, this story, it's absolutely nuts. You often hear about people being told, you know, they aren't allowed to come into this business unless they're wearing a mask. I mean, we hear those stories on the news all the time, especially in Eastern Canada, where masks are mandatory in some provinces. In this case, it was the exact opposite. So you have this woman named Allie, uh, Allie Cloth. She walks into Bikram Yoga Studio on Commercial Drive, and she is wearing a mask. She has some lung problems, and she's wearing a mask. She was turned away because she was wearing the mask. So hmm. imagine this. She walks into this yoga studio and she says that's when she saw the owner at the front desk. Really? Uh, you're wearing a mask? And I said, yep, you're going to start with me already about that? And we've never gotten along, to be honest. So that's why I'm... Uh, anyway, um, happy to not ever go back. So he proceeded to check me and my friend in about to put my mat down in the studio he came to the door of the the studio room um, and he said Allie can I just talk to you for a sec he brought me into another room where he basically said he and the other owner did not really want masks there he said fear breeds fear and I said I'm not really scared of anything but you he already knew I had lung issues I had a pulmonary embolism and pneumonia previously. So I was just mindful of my lungs and not wanting to get sick. I don't understand, Nikki, the part about the story with we don't want the masks here because what's it to them if somebody wants to wear a mask? Well, this is what I don't get at all. I mean, who cares? If one of your customers comes in and they're wearing a mask, great. What's it to you? Uh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Who it, it literally detracts 0% from your business. However, this yoga studio, they insisted that she take off the mask or they said, look, we'll give you a refund. So she said, fine, I'll take the refund and I I'm going to leave. But 
when Global News contacted the the yoga studio, they said that masks may reduce the ability to breathe comfortably and are not permitted inside the yoga practice room. But what's it to them? (laughs) Yeah, again, that sounds like it's up to the client, to be honest. If you can't breathe comfortably while you're doing yoga, maybe you opt to leave or maybe you, you take off your mask or whatever. But again, if the business is okay with their clientele not wearing masks, then it seems like it should be up to the customer's discretion. Instead, this business said, no, get out. You're wearing a mask. Here's your refund. Hit the road. Okay, that really disturbs me because anybody who's been to Bikram Yoga One knows how hot it is in there, right? Everybody's super sweaty, lots of moisture around. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I wouldn't want to go without wearing a mask. Yeah, it's something Justin Trudeau might say, people doing yoga moistly. Oh, you had to go there. there. You had to go there, <laughs> didn't you? But, you know, as she said, Bikram can be a pretty uh, strict practice. Yes, it is. But she said in this case, the the rules and that sense of of being strict in this practice is totally misplaced and irresponsible as well. I would agree. I I just don't understand. Again, I don't understand what it is to them if if one of their, you know, people want to do that, want to wear that mask. But anyway, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we know that there have been a lot of countries, a lot of people who have singled out the World Health Organization during this COVID-19 pandemic as not doing the job that everyone had kind of hoped. They can't be all things to all people, but still, a lot of areas that could have been done better here. Well, all of that came to a head yesterday when the United States announced that they will officially leave the World Health Organization, and that is in spite of the fact they contribute almost a quarter of that organization's budget. Does that complicate things in the search for all this uh, a worldwide vaccine for COVID-19 and the international cooperation that is done under the WHO umbrella? Joining us now is Ophelia Michelides, a manager of the Centre for Global Health at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Ophelia, thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Is this a concern with the U.S. announcing that they want out? So, Simi... Um I really appreciate the time to talk to you and your listeners about this. Um, Global health issues are certainly very complex and complicated and infused with a lot of uncertainty. And um, if the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything so far, it is that it is very far-reaching and having an undeniable impact on people across Canada and the world. Um, and pandemics do have a funny way of teaching us about ourselves and our public institutions. Um, they uncover the cracks in our systems, whether it be our health systems, our, our public, our social uh, systems, our political systems. And um, the field of global health at its core is built around the idea of improving health um, and the well-being of people and the planet from a number of vantage points. Um, as a global health practitioner coming from a school of public health, um, I certainly embrace the mission of an improving um, health for all um, and recognize that in order to create positive change in the world, we need to be equipped to do so. And this goes beyond just technical knowledge in public health, but rather an understanding of the range of factors that affect our health. Um, And we do have a particular tool in global health to deal with this complexity, um, and it is called global health diplomacy. And it is essentially um, where the art of diplomacy and the science of public health meet. Um, It's a process that involves 
many actors and shapes the way um, health plays out on a global scale. And the U- U.S.'s decision to retract from the World Health Organization is a real-life example of uh, global health diplomacy in action. Okay, so given how important, from what you've just described there, how important the World Health Organization is, when you have so much kind of controversy surrounding it, does that impede worldwide efforts, do you think, to fight something like COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question, Samini, and certainly the question that is on everyone's mind. Um, there is a group of scholars and experts um, in global public health. Um, it's actually a group or a consortium of universities for global health, to which the Dalai Lama School of Public Health belongs, um, who wrote a letter and released a letter to the U.S. Congress yesterday, actually, outlining the potentially devastating impacts of the U.S.'s withdrawal from the World Health Organization, um, as uh, we've probably been hearing over the news these days, the U.S. has an annual contribution to the WHO and then about the $400 million mark, um, making it the largest funding source for the agency. It provides certainly uh, well over 10% of the agency's budget. And withdrawing the support will possibly cost lives um, with respect to COVID. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, for the U.S., uh, the U.S. will lose access to the WHO's global systems for sharing critical outbreak data and vaccine information. Right. Um, and certainly outside of the U.S., again, the U.S. Um, funds the largest portion of the WHO's health emergency program, which means funding for testing, for contact tracing, for building our healthcare workforce, and including vaccine development um, could be lost. And it is important to note that um, it will possibly cost lives in all countries, even outside of COVID. Again, U.S. funds have helped to fund initiatives beyond COVID, such as vaccines and HIV AIDS. Uh, So undoubtedly, the implications will be difficult. Uh, The health implications will be difficult for the U.S., uh, the WHO and all countries. The world needs U.S. expertise in science and vice versa. So do people look at that and think only of the political argument when it comes to the World Health Organization, not understanding, as you were just explaining, all of the things that go on underneath it, that is the collecting of data, the statistics, all of that, which is so valuable? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that, I mean, COVID-19 doesn't have borders and it, it, to some degree, neither should some of our institutions. And so we, we certainly need global institutions that work across different countries' interests and negotiate um, what's best for all uh, people. I mean, I think it's also interesting and important to remember what the WHO represents. I mean, we create institutions and we give them power according to our values. And if COVID has taught us anything, um, it's taught us that we value health and that the right to health needs to be protected. And uh, the WHO has historically been set up to do so. All right. So is this like for people who work in public health, as you do, are you concerned about the lack of information that might come to public health organizations from a result of this? Mm -hmm. No, that's an excellent question. And I do know that, um, for instance, Canada and also institutions, academic institutions um, will continue to uh, contribute to to research around global policy when it comes to global health challenges um, and to share this information. Um, And I I do believe that it's important to stay at the table so that 
I mean, for instance, Canada, I, I certainly cannot speak on behalf of the government of Canada, but Canada is, we know, is a supporter and a significant funder of the WHO and continues to be part of this global response to tackle COVID-19, which includes information sharing. All right, Ophelia, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Simi. That is Ophelia Michaelides, who is the manager of the Centre for Global Health at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Now, for people who work in public health, what they heard yesterday is concerning from the President of the United States saying that the United States was going to get out of the World Health Organization uh, because what about all that information? That's what epidemiology and public health and all that is based on, data, stats, knowing what is going on in other parts of the world. An outbreak like COVID-19, you can't get the heads up necessarily unless all these countries are reporting to the World Health Organization. So that is the concern there. What will this mean? That'll be a big missing piece. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking this morning about the fact that later today we will be getting a fiscal update from the federal government. Global Mail newspaper is reporting that Federal Finance Minister Bill Morneau could announce a federal deficit of $300 billion today. So we thought, let's put that number in perspective because it is huge, it is scary, but what does it mean? Joining us now is David McDonald, Senior Ottawa Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that is certainly an unprecedented number. Should Canadians be concerned about that? It is unprecedented, the biggest we've certainly had in our history. Um, But I think one of the things to always remember with federal deficits is that the federal government doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists tightly connected to the rest of the economy. And the deficit's an accounting convention, uh, and it's one side of the ledger. And any deficit means a dollar-for-dollar benefit in some other part of the economy. And so this $300 billion deficit at the federal level means a $300 billion benefit or surplus in another area of the economy. And so looking at the programs that created this deficit, most of that uh, benefit is actually going to people who've lost their jobs or people who would have lost their jobs had there not been the wage subsidy program. And so this is exactly the type of thing the federal government should be doing, is supporting uh, the people that otherwise would have been hit very hard by this with, in the sense that they wouldn't have gotten income support, so they would have lost their jobs. Right. Okay. So I think people understand that, right? They know that the government did have to have this extraordinary amount of spending. I guess the question is, how do we dig ourselves out of this hole now? Well, I mean, what's interesting is that um, the federal government has actually never borrowed money this cheaply. The interest rate for the federal government, we have never seen an interest rate this low in our history. We can lock in an interest rate now where uh, people who lend us money uh, lose money over the course of the five or 10 year period that they've lent us this money because interest rates are so low, they're actually below the rate of inflation. And so in that sense, I mean, this is a, an ideal situation for us. We're not paying 9% interest, we're paying you know, under a percent interest um, on this type of debt. And so in that sense, uh, you know, the, the actual cost to carry this debt is extremely low. Um, and otherwise, I mean, the deficit, the deficit can be shifted. I mean, this is the other thing that, that can happen is that it didn't have to happen at the federal level. We could have just decided, the federal government could have decided not to have these types of programs. That would have shifted the deficit out of the federal books, but onto household books and onto provincial books as social assistance caseloads exploded, for instance, or people, you know, use their credit cards, lines of interest, and uh, drew down their bank accounts in order to cover for the fact they'd lost their jobs. So we can move deficits. Um, It happened that the federal government took on most of the deficit, but they're in a 
a good position to do that. Right. They still would have been in a deficit, though, because the amount of money that's not coming in, right, in terms of revenue would also be a huge impact. That's right. And so uh, this is the other piece of why the, the $300 billion number is going to come up is not only that there's these new programs like CERB and the wage subsidy, uh, but also what the amount they take in through corporate income taxes, personal income taxes, and the GST will also be down because people lost their jobs and therefore they're not paying taxes and so on. Um, and so that's a, that will have an impact. But in the grand scheme of things, the losses from uh, corporate and personal income taxes are going to be a fair amount lower than the cost of these new programs like the emergency benefit. Uh, we'll see the full details when, when everything's released at 1.40 this afternoon. Uh, but it looks like at this point from some preliminary estimates that that will be a, a smaller part of that overall deficit. Okay, so what, what are you looking for? Like, what do you want to hear from the finance minister today? Well, certainly it'll be interesting to see what the federal projections are of the total deficit and how it breaks down. Um, I think the next critical step for the federal government right now is what happens in August when the emergency benefit, uh, as is scheduled to, um, expires and we move back to the EI system. I think that there needs to be a better transition from the emergency benefit back onto EI and critical changes made to EI that make it much better and make it more similar, in fact, to the emergency benefit. Like you can pay benefits quickly. It covers gig workers like the Mm -hmm. emergency benefit does and so on. Um, That, I think, is the next critical step for the federal government. And we'll see if we get more details in this update And then the next step going forward is how do we start to rebuild our economy, go outside of just cash transfers to rebuilding our economy? We've got big sectors of the economy, retail, food, hospitality, that are are just not going to come back uh, in the way that we have, you know, in the way that they were in February uh, for years, um, uh, particularly if we don't have a vaccine. Uh, And so how do we get those workers into new jobs so that they're not on emergency benefits in EI? Uh, Predominantly women staffing those sectors, low-wage women in particular, making under $16 an hour. Um, So how do we retrain those folks to get them into other sectors in the economy? Um, And also, how do we rebuild uh, childcare and schools such that they can Mm -hmm. operate in a COVID-19 world and let their parents go back to work? I mean, this is another big piece of it, is that um, even even as we do reopen childcare and schools, not the same capacity levels, uh, thinking of kids being home a couple days a week. Well, you're, <laughs> you can't work if your kids are at home two days a week, certainly not a full-time job. And these are, I think, the critical next questions after we get out of this emergency phase of trying to support people with income supports. All right, David, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's David McDonald, Senior Ottawa Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, talking about what we are likely to hear from the Finance Minister Bill Morneau later today. Federal deficit could be up to $300 billion, but that is for the emergency portion of the things that we had to do for the last you know, four months or so. So how do they intend to resolve that moving forward? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've been hearing these stories anecdotally and talking to people about them for months, right? Frontline healthcare workers who haven't been able to see their parents, their partners, sometimes even their children. It's taking a huge toll. And health experts are sounding the alarm about this. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Fardis Husseini, who's the Vice President of Research and Policy at the Centre of Excellence on Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder at the Royal Ottawa Hospital. Fardis, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So are we concerned about kind of the long-term uh, mental health impact this is having on our frontline healthcare workers? 
Absolutely. Yeah. What we've seen since the COVID-19 outbreak, our frontline healthcare workers have been under considerable stress. You know, every day they're engaged in a balancing act, making critical decisions around which patients will receive life-saving care when resources are limited, having to discharge someone earlier than recommended to avoid the risk of infecting others, or having to eliminate quote-unquote non-essential care during the crisis. And we know being stretched physically and mentally and unable to provide optimum care to everyone may lead to moral injury. Uh, And the concept of moral injury is not a new construct. It started in the veteran military population where uh, veterans who have shown to have mental health problems emerge from decisions they made or witnessed that are in conflict with their deeply held values. And we're seeing that healthcare workers right now, you know, who might come into work with, you know, low PPE and have a sense of uh, guilt or anger mm-hmm. or betrayal at the system because they're like, why am I coming into work and putting myself at risk? And why is the system put me in a kind of situation? And that day in, day out, Stress can actually lead to moral injury. Right. Now, I know you're one of the groups that has been involved in kind of putting together guidelines or creating some guidelines to help with this potential emotional trauma. What are those guidelines like? Yeah, we just recently, you know, yesterday released a guideline, uh, well, moral uh, stress amongst healthcare workers during COVID-19, a guide to moral injury, where we're talking about what can frontline workers do, what can administrators do, what can organizations do to ensure that they're putting the best systems in place to make sure that the well-being of their frontline healthcare workers are being taken care of. So everyone has a role to play here, you know. So this is a map uh, to essentially implement uh, preventative and early intervention structures to support healthcare workers. So at an organization level, you know, you want to make sure that you're promoting a supportive culture, you know, including support services for staff. You know, you want to be rotating staff between high and low stress roles, uh, establishing policies to guide staff through ethically difficult decisions. And then there's also steps you have to take at the team level. You know, you want to ensure that you're providing strong leadership and establish cohesive teams with high morale. Uh, you want to ensure you're being prepared to discuss moral and ethical challenges. So having a debrief, an opportunity to debrief after a difficult day or even a difficult moment. And then at the individual level, you know, also getting individuals to understand what these moral stressors might be, what moral injury is, and what they can do about it. You know, so getting the uh, eating well, regular exercise, maintaining social connections. So this is essentially a map that we've uh, developed that can help organizations, individuals, and teams to be well prepared to uh, address this. And you know, we want to become, we want to move upstream and get there before it becomes a significant crisis. Right, because we weren't prepared for this in, in terms of emotionally and those mental health issues that you're talking about. I think that's something that really caught everybody off guard. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of work in Canada, we've been extremely fortunate, you know, where our doctors and nurses are not having to decide who gets access to a, a limited number of ventilators. You know, we've seen in, in Italy and the U.S. where this has been quite a huge issue and putting that kind of burden on an individual who's Hippocratic on this to, you know, make sure that they're taking care of the well-being of everyone. You know, that kind of increased job demand in this risky circumstance is something that we weren't prepared for, you know, but it's important that now that we've named it and we're building awareness toward it, is to ensure that those supports are in place to help uh, everyone so they don't feel like they're being overburdened, overwhelmed. Are there signs for Deuce as well that we should be looking for if we know somebody who is a frontline healthcare worker? Yeah, so in the, in the veteran military population, moral injury is defined as, you know, the psychological, social, and spiritual impacts of events involving betrayal or transgression of one's own deeply held moral beliefs and values. So, you know, sometimes people might feel guilt or shame. You know, we've heard from doctors that have, you know, at uh, because of the 
evolving nature of COVID-19 and even the treatment options. Uh, some doctors, you know, they've told us they at one point put a patient on his back and who quickly then started breathing. But when they tried the same technique, the next day another patient, that person flatlined. So, you know, they're really worried about the different outcomes, you know, so making sure that you have an opportunity to debrief because when you see that guilt, shame, anger, betrayal, those are the early signs of potential more injury. And if you're feeling that day in, day out, that's what can lead to, you know, right. the potential issues. Do you get the sense that we're going to be dealing with this, some of the, the fallout from this for years to come? Yeah, everything is pointing to a pretty significant psychological consequence of all this, you know, but that's why we're hoping uh, with the help of many partners in the space and, you know, and to make sure that we're building that awareness so everyone uh, knows about this and, you know, and then we can make sure that the organizations have put everything in place to minimize this as much as we can, you know, because we know it's occurring, we're hearing it anecdotally and we're slowly starting to study it because it's a fairly newer construct in the healthcare workers. But absolutely, um, you know, there's a second wave, potential for a second wave. We want to make sure that we're getting ahead of it because uh, if we don't, this will be another crisis on top of a crisis. All right, Vardus, thank you very much for your time and telling us all about it. Of course. Thank you for having me on, Sami. That care. is Vardus Husseini, who's the Vice President of Research and Policy at the Centre of Excellence on Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder at the Royal Ottawa Hospital. So they have developed some criteria, some guidelines, really, to help prevent and also help kind of recognize the emotional trauma that some frontline healthcare workers are going through on top of everything that they're seeing at work, right? And look at what's happening down in the United States. Like, we were kind of protected from it here in BC, but still, it has been an incredibly stressful time. And then they can't see their parents. They can't see their partners, sometimes even their children. So yeah, that is taking a huge toll out there. If you'd like to comment, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there are thousands and thousands of businesses here in BC, and it has been a huge challenge to make sure those of them that interact with the public have safety rules in place so that they are complying with COVID-19 regulations. Making sure that happens is the job of WorkSafe BC, but not everybody is going along with the rules, so we thought we would check in on how that's going. Al Johnson joins us now, the head of prevention services at WorkSafe BC. Al, thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Good morning, Simi. How many inspections are you guys doing? We have done a number of inspections and consultations. Uh, our staff have been working very hard uh, across the province to engage with workers and employers uh, to help them really develop and implement their COVID safety plans for their specific workplaces. We've done approximately 12,000 inspections uh, up until approximately the end of June uh, across a wide variety of industry sectors. We've reached out and done uh, 2,000 plus consultations in addition to that. So we're getting out there and I'm pleased to say that generally speaking, the vast majority of employers are meeting their responsibilities, their responsibilities to assess the risk and manage the potential COVID exposures for their workers or to their workers by following their COVID safety plans that they're putting in place. As you mentioned in the intro, there are a few hiccups here and there. We're dealing with those and working with those employers. Um, But generally speaking, out of 12,000 inspections, um, we've written about 330 orders. Okay, so that's not bad, 330 out of the, you know, 12,000 there. What happens in those cases? Were they just didn't understand the rules? Are they kind of willfully disobeying the rules? 
It's a little bit um, uh, all of that, for sure, and a little bit more. Uh, prevention officers write orders when they feel that certainly there's a violation mm-hmm. uh, to the regulation and the employer needs some further direction or motivation to change something. Uh, in, in, a, in, in an essence, the employer might not do it voluntarily when it comes to COVID issues. And so we see when we look at the orders that have been written, um, there's really two sectors that sort of stand out, and that's the service sector that uh, addresses hotels or includes hotels, restaurants, hair salons, that type of service, and then the trade sector, which is really the retail operations that operate in the province. And uh, for, for the most part, those orders that have been written have fallen into those, those two sectors. And they deal with a couple of things. Um, we, have a, we, we really write orders around COVID for the general requirement for employers to establish and maintain a healthy and safe workplace. So it's a general duty. And we see that there's a couple of uh, uh, COVID issues that really tease out. The COVID plan uh, may not be communicated or understood by the workers themselves, so there's a greater need for orientation and training in some cases. Also, for new workers, they need to make sure they understand what is expected of them when it comes to COVID. Um, We've also had orders written around the participation of safety representatives or, or worker representatives and joint health and safety committee persons participating in the COVID safety plan development. Mm-hmm. We want employers to work with their works, their workers, work with their staff to develop the plan so that both parties know what's expected and what's going on. And then the, the other area where we see orders being written are really where the plans are missing something. Um, it might be around physical distancing. It might be around hygiene practices or, or what the, whatever the case may be or the written plan is not being followed or practiced, Uh, the practice is different to the plan. Right. So that uh, the employer writes a really good plan, but then over time, uh, they, they see there's a different way of doing things, but they don't update their plan. So these plans are intended to be fluid, dynamic, to mm-hmm. be reviewed, and we really want the plan that's written to be what's being practiced on the shop floor, so to speak. Oh. So that's really the area. Nothing overly significant, uh, nothing that's, uh, that's life and death when it comes to these issues, but it's really about tweaking, improving, uh, picking up on, on strengthening the plans that uh, mm-hmm. uh, are in those particular sectors. Well, you got a lot of work to do. Al, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. So in the news, you've been hearing about something called the BC Virtual Services Card. It's a new way for residents to access government services electronically. And this could mean all sorts of things. And you're wondering right now, wait, do I need one of these? Like, should I be getting one of these? Let's find out. Joining us is the Minister of Citizen Services, Anne Kang. Thank you very much for being here. Morning, Sydney. It's good to be here. So who should be getting one of these cards? So um, I'd like to start by saying that most people in British Columbia who are citizens, um, we do, everyone does already have a BC services card. Um, Many people may recognize this as um, the amalgamation of their previous care card, which became, um, when we put more services into the care card, uh, it became the BC services card. And uh, most recently in the past few years, ICBC and BC services card has been working together to produce one card. So many people have this one card, which they, they really identify as uh, the BC service, uh, sorry, their, their driver's license, but it is their BC services card. 
Ah, okay. So is this for yeah. people then who don't have a driver's license? No, actually, um, m- most people in BC have a BC services card, and um, it is not something new. In the past, uh, we have people going into BC, uh, sorry, service BC centers or activating um, other sorts of government services using their BC service card. It's just that people aren't used to using the name BC service card. So if you take a look at your driver's license, um, it does say BC. Uh, driver's license and services card. Right. Okay. So then, how is that different from the virtual services card? Um, yeah. So during the uh, p- pandemic, more and more people are using their mobile uh, BC service card to access online government services. And so this program was actually um, launched. It was called Verified by Video Service. And um, so to keep up with uh, the the time to be innovative. Um, to, to meet citizen demands, we are moving a lot of our government services online so people could do the work online. Um, and so we, we have found that there are more people who want to activate their BC service card online. And during the p- pandemic, we are seeing more and more um, uh, people doing that. So to, to help with the bottleneck and uh, the, the, the growth of the volume, we now have... Uh, a new stand video option so that uh, people could use this anytime, anywhere, and how they want it to. So they don't have to wait in queue to have their identification verified by a BC service uh, customer representative. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it kind of avoids the lineup. Yes, yeah. So quickly and conveniently. Right. So then what would we use this for? What is is everything we could, instead of our, instead of having to go wait in a lineup at a BC services center? Yes, yeah. So um, we have quite a few services that are available. Um, so once the car is activated, people can uh, pay their bills or access their health information. Um, for example, uh, we, so we launched this program last year uh, in June with the post-secondary students, and they are able to apply for student loans with a student aid uh, BC. Other uh, online services that we can find are um, people can use this to access BC Corporate Registry online tool to manage uh, cooperatively, uh, sorry, cooperative associations with the cooperative online. We can also pay health-related bills and student loans, um, access health information using the health gateway, Mm -hmm. and view and manage your personal income tax and benefit information with my account from uh, the Canadian Revenue Agency. So it's very convenient. Um, you may choose. We're not taking away any existing programs. Uh, you people can still access uh, services through our service BC or other federal partners, or you could choose to access government service online anytime, anywhere you want. Okay. So then, for more mm-hmm. for more information, is there like a website people can go to to learn more about this? Definitely, you could go to service BC. Um, at gov.bc.ca. All right, we will do that. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sarah. That is Anne Kang, Minister of Citizen Services, talking about the new BC Virtual Services card. So anything that you would go and get in a line for, for the BC government, for a BC government service, is now something that you can do online instead. There, Of course, this all has to do with COVID-19, right? Too many people in the lineups, too much stuff going on. This is an easier way for them to keep track of all of that. So this avoids that. For more information, just go online and check it out for yourself.